0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's start from the very beginning where research is incorporating patient perspectives. What's going to be best for this patient? What's going to actually make this patient live longer and a better quality of life?
1: From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, Christine Hodgdon, a globetrotting human Fodor conservation biologist turned radvocate. That would be my neologism for radical advocate by way of her enduring the loss of her father to a rare cancer at the same time of her own diagnosis of stage four metastatic breast cancer and thyroid cancer. Not that there's Ever a good time to enter the shit happens door of cancer, but come on, really? By the way, she was a legacy vegetarian, peak condition marathoner in the best shape of her life. So to all the cancer is preventable people, how do you like them apples? Among many other interesting things that we talk about, we address the issues of gaps in cancer research that exist because the patients are not involved. Guys, we're the end user. Might make sense to give us a seat at the table to help you make the sausage that might one day course through our veins in the hopes of not dying. I think you get the gist. Enjoy my chat with Christine Hodgson. If you were here, you'd see like my desk is covered in Christine, That's endless, so funny. <laughs> endless fodder. It's like a Dexter's Lab forensics with the string. And the push pins, you know, it's like a better Silence of the Lambs CSI Miami. Well, not Miami. Miami's fucked right now. It's just a better version of that. But I'm thrilled. I'm totally thrilled to have you on. And like I said, we've been ships in the night for a long time. We've been traveling the same stupid cancer circles forever. But you represent something so interesting in the annals of advocacy, which is the kind of born into it by accident advocate. You know, you nearly died at five. You nearly died at whatever age you were when you get all the cancers, your father passed away and you found yourself in a situation where you were the end of one snowflake where some drug actually worked. But I, I always like to talk about metastatic cancer because no one does. And it's this like redheaded stepchild of breast cancer and everyone thinks it's a thing. And so when you first walked into that shit happened store, you know, thyroid kind of like the added bonus. Was it yep. the least likely thing you ever expected to happen in your life?
0: Actually... It wasn't because I feel like a lot of people experience this when they lose a parent young. I and my brothers all felt like we were all going to die young. We had this sensation that like, okay, you know, well, if it can happen to my dad, it can happen to us. So I had always kind of thought that I would probably get cancer, which sounds really strange, but it's true. So when... When I was told that I had breast cancer, it was still, it was still a shock, you know, of course, because you, you can think one thing, but then when it actually comes down to it, it's really scary. So I was, it wasn't the last thing that I thought of. It was just kind of, I just felt like, all right, well, well now I have to move forward. Now I'm going to have to like, it was just like I saw the whole fight laid out ahead of me. And I know a lot of patients don't like to talk about it as a fight, but you are battling something. I mean, I, you know, it was, I knew it was ahead of me because I saw my dad go through it. And mm-hmm. we had some really uncanny parallels with our cancer diagnosis, but it wasn't the last thing I thought of. No, <laughs> I wasn't surprised.
1: I feel like that is a, a, um, a, a very cockeyed, cynical predisposition of bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> you, yes, you walked into it like just whatever you want me you're 34 I was 21 like we're in such a different mindset at our age yeah so you you had this sort of sense of uh i would say pseudo vulnerability that most 34 year olds don't normally have
0: yeah and I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't lost my dad right you know it was he had died six years before and I would not have had that my life was like so perfect before my dad um got sick I really thought that you know, I thought every good things happen to good people. And that's how the life that's how life works. And that's how the world goes. And it was like, No, that's not true at all. So yeah, once I had that experience, it it did sort of it put like a, like you said, kind of like that cynical filter (laughs) on everything. Yeah. But you know, I think for me, it, it served me well that I really did walk into I was very healthy when I got diagnosed, which sounds Funny, it's like, oh, you were healthy when you got diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Yes, I was very healthy. I had been a vegetarian for twenty years. I had exercised, you know, run half marathons, at least twelve half marathons, I think, at that point. And I was training for a triathlon. You know, like I was just in the middle of my, you know, I was in my prime. And so um, when I got diagnosed, I was super healthy, which really did, and I had this attitude like, bring it on. And my mantra was. I'll make you my bitch, which is so (laughs) terrible. That sounds very, um, you know, this was five years ago, so this is before the Me Too movement, I probably wouldn't be using the word bitch now. But I remember going on a run running while I knew I had cancer was before I did any of my treatments. And I remember coming home and taking a picture of my watch, which showed like an eight minute pace, that I had just run three miles. And I said, you know, the whole time, I had this mantra of I will make you my bitch. And it felt really good. You know, it felt good to be <laughs> to be like this badass who was going to take cancer on. Now, I feel a lot differently having gone through it. It's it's really different when you're metastatic, you know, because you're you're in treatment indefinitely. There's not really an end in sight, and I think that's why patients are sensitive to the word survivor. And many people die of metastatic cancer, so the, I, I understand it. Um, but for me, it did kind of feel like a battle I was going through, and I I had chemo and. And for me, I happen to have as you mentioned, I have a certain subtype of cancer that responds really well to targeted therapy. So, I'm very lucky that I don't have to be on chemo for the rest of my life. I get to be on targeted treatments that have pretty limited side effects, some some side effects, but you know, it's not chemotherapy. So, you know, it's a little bit of a different angle for me. And I think what we're learning about metastatic disease is that there's a spectrum of metastatic disease, you know, there are different types of stage four people. And so I would love to see in the future that they actually like stage four, A, B, and C, because you know, I would be considered like a four A. I'm very early. I was very early in my stage four diagnosis. And so, um, you know, it's very different from somebody who is maybe older, has other comorbidities and may not survive for that much longer. So, you know, it's a totally different spectrum. And that was, that's what I've learned that, you know, when I first walked into this, I was like, I don't want to meet metastatic patients. I don't know if you felt that way about meeting cancer patients, but I was like, I do not want to meet another metastatic patient because there's nobody like me. I'm doing really well, and I don't want to meet anybody it's gonna, that's going to scare me. And I couldn't have been further from the truth with that. There's a lot of people like me. It's just we don't talk about it. <laughs> it's just not out there.
1: <laughs> so you asked me if I ever wanted to know someone like me when I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed during Clinton before the internet when AOL CDs were rampant and The Wiz was making all of its crazy commercials. <laughs> so – it didn't even occur to me that there could be anyone else I could talk to so it never dawned on me to even think about that plus I was a 21-year-old in pediatrics so the the mm-hmm. even the idea of quote peer Didn't mean anything to me. And I've said this incessantly in my career. It took me seven years to meet somebody who was like me. And that was the gestalt moment that really set me off in getting out of my second career, because I was supposed to be a concert pianist, into the world of advocacy. I tend to live by the dogmatic principle of that it's not about what you have, it's about your commonalities with people. So I just wanted to meet someone who knew what it was like to be impotent and lose your body image when you're in your 20s and supposed to be doing the things that 20-somethings are going to do. I do want to comment on your sort of starting to sub-segment the stage fours into Mm -hmm. the oh shit-ometer of how bad you are. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the value in that as far as like kind of, is it a label? Is it just for you to have a sense of, you know, do I go cliff diving now or should I have a kid? What does that mean to you?
0: That's a really good question. It's hard to say. I feel like it's it's valuable if you're on the beginning end of that 4A. <laughs> you know, if you're at that side, it's valuable. Because then you can sort of continue to plan your life. And even though they told me, I mean, they still said, now I was five years ago. So even in five years, we've come very far because I was a HER2-positive breast cancer patient. So, you know, even since then, there's been several drugs approved. So five years ago, they were still kind of saying to me. We're not going to give you a timeline, which I, I actually agree with at any stage. I don't think doctors know enough to determine when you're going to die. And that can really mess with patient psyche. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think you should ever give a timeline. Like that's just when, when patients come to me and say that their, their doctor said I have two months to live, you know, I – you know, I try to like temper that with like, well, let's just, you know, let's look at the facts. Let's see, because they really don't, they don't know. Although I will say the doctor with my father completely nailed it like to the day. Wow! So they, yeah, to the day when I finally got the guts to ask him how much longer my dad had, he said three weeks. And it was like three weeks from that day. So they do know some things. I just think that there is value if you are, You know, if you're young and you are on this, you know, on this side of the, where you're going to have targeted treatments where you have, for me, I also was hormone receptor positive. So I had to be more targets to hit and um, yeah, I'm going through hell with some of my side effects, but now I kind of see my prognosis much differently and it's gotten better. The longer you live with metastatic breast cancer, the more likely you are to survive longer. It's very interesting. So I didn't know any of that when I first got diagnosed, I just thought I was going to die. You know, I figured, okay, I got diagnosed de novo, meaning from the very beginning I was metastatic, and it was around the same time my dad got diagnosed, and he, you know, was diagnosed in June and died in September, and I thought, well, I'll just follow that same track. I'll just do chemo, and then it probably won't work, and then I'll probably just die. But then as I started doing the treatments and learning more, I realized, like, our cases were actually vastly different. He had like a rhabdomyosarcoma is what it was called. And so very rare. And it's usually in pediatrics. It's right. Usually yes, it is. Not, yeah. So he was 57 when he was diagnosed with that. And they, I still follow that. And they still don't have much, you know, they, don't, they still don't know much about it and what to do with it. And um, so that was, you know, he was literally, he was like a stage 4C he came in like very late in the game, you know? And so, I mean, while it would have been very painful to hear like, okay, he's a stage four C, this means that, you know, you only have a couple months to live. It's hard to say if I would have reacted well to that, but I I kind of feel like patients deserve the information. If they don't want to know it, then they can say, I don't want to know. But, you know, it, it would have been nice to know that that was going to be the last three months. Maybe we would have done hospice. Maybe we would have done palliative care, you know, instead of putting him through scan and chemo and tests. I mean, his last three months of life were, were awful. So, you know, maybe that would have helped us put it in perspective and just say, okay, let's wrap our brains around this. This isn't good, but maybe we should just, you know, take stock, go home and not be in a hospital for the next three months. So, you know, it's, it's a tough question to answer because it's so personal and everybody responds differently. Like I'm just a type of person that I feel like the more knowledge I have, the better, like the safer I am, the more power I have. So that's my feeling, but I, I don't like the label. I do think a label sucks. To say like, oh, you're a goner, <laughs> like you're terminal, you're 4C, you know. I mean, we can we can message it maybe a little bit softer than that, but I do think there's value, and and especially for the people that are in that. Stage four early category. I mean, it would have been nice to know five years ago that I would still be here, that I'd turn four, I turned 40 this year. And I didn't know if I was going to make it to 40. You know, so I was like, it would have been nice to know that. But really, cancer is so, um, it's just such an ambiguous disease. Like it, and so many people respond differently that it's very hard, I think, to really say exactly how a person is going to do. You just don't know.
1: Back with our guest after the break.
0: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
1: So the expression manners maketh man, I like to believe that nurture maketh gumption. And you came to this shit happen store predisposed as a globalist, a citizen of the planet, and You had been all around, literally Lisa Stansfield, been around the world and I, I, I can't find my baby. Talk to us about how that appreciation for other cultures and other life experiences and and other countries' health systems that you were really wading into factor into the accidental advocate that you became.
0: So, yes, I did travel a lot. I was a conservation biologist, and that meant I got to travel to the tropics, to, you know, habitat that had endangered species. That was what I mostly did was find and protect habitat that, you know, housed endangered species. It was a really cool job. Um, But even before that, I traveled a ton. I just loved traveling. And I did do Peace Corps in Guatemala. And I lived there for two years and three months. So I really did get a sense of the healthcare, especially when I got dengue fever. Yeah. (laughs) And I was hospitalized for a couple weeks. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was, wow. It was crazy. Um, You know, it was really, it was like I walked into the 1950s. (laughs) The first hospital I was at was kind of in a remote area. And um, the nurses had like the little hats on, you know, like they did in like the 50s. (laughs) And... um, they had like no amenities. I mean, my my bed had to be cranked to go up and down. The IV pole didn't have any wheels on it. They, they could barely get an IV in me. Like it was a very different experience than what I would have had in the US. And interestingly enough, one of the things, you know, after my dad's experience, I had kind of learned how amazing nurses are. And we liked working with nurses more than we did with the doctors. The nurses were more personable. They would explain things better. And the doctors were kind of like, I'm too busy for you right now. I don't have time to answer these questions. So I was kind of very focused on the nurses, you know, and remember, I'm trying to speak Spanish. I could speak Spanish pretty well by then, but when you're sick, it's like really hard to speak in a different language. And so I'm trying to communicate with the nurses, trying to tell them what's going on, where I'm having pain. And, you know, what my situation was, I had basically been, you know, a dengue fever is like, it's a fever, you know, and I was at like 105. And I was by myself in my little house in Guatemala. And um, I didn't get to the hospital for like three or four days. So I was really sick by the time I did get to the hospital. And it was just very difficult to explain and communicate. And um, what I realized, though, is that the doctors there, were actually, they had much more training than the nurses. It's not the same in the U.S. You know, the nurses have a ton of training. And so then I learned, okay, I've got to work with the doctors. This is like a different culture. This is like a different, it's just a different country. And I'm going to have to like work with the doctors. And I found the doctors to be very knowledgeable and very helpful, but it definitely gave me an appreciation for, for I mean people complain a lot about the u s health system, but i, I can 't even explain the terror I had walking into this into this hospital and feeling like i mean I felt like I was dying, and there was just like nothing that they could do i mean it 's a virus there 's nothing you can do for a virus you know right. you just have to kind of wait it out, and I was severely dehydrated and And what happened was they told me, we're going to have to remove your gallbladder. Actually, I remember I was sitting after they'd done the, you know, like an ultrasound because I was having so much pain. And I heard the woman say, tu vesícula está inflamada. And I was like, something is inflamed. What the hell is a vesícula? (laughs) (laughs) She's like, she's like, it's a gallbladder. And I was like, you know, I would never have learned that. It was just kind of funny because... I never learned some of these words. Like, why would I learn the word gallbladder? Right, you know, yeah. like, And so I knew, like, lungs and heart, but, like, I didn't know all these, like, technical terms. So it was, like, this whole world of just, you know, different language, different, different healthcare system, different nursing, different doctors. So what ended up happening was they transferred me to Guatemala City, which is the capital. And, oh, my God, that was, like, a dream. Walking in there, I was, like, this is, like, a five-star hotel. This is amazing. You know, it was just – it was very – very clean, very, you know, I, I mean, just it was the stereotypical hospital. All my family thought I was that first type of hospital that I was in. That's what they thought all of Guatemala hospitals were like. Well, that's not true. You right. know, in the city, they have really nice hospitals. I mean, the doctor was like, By the way, if I have a certification that if the president of the United States needed surgery, I'm one of the only people in this country that could perform a surgery on the president. I was like, okay, that makes me that makes me feel better. Yes. But um, you know, it was just the majority of that country, the only access they had were to hospitals like the first hospital I was at in this remote setting. It was just very different. So I definitely, I've learned how to work the U.S. health system. And now I kind of have a better understanding of how to deal with health systems in developing countries. Uh, So, yes, I've learned a lot through all my travels. (laughs) It's been very interesting.
1: So you pretty much like quit your career when all this happened to you and switched from like unleaded to super in your gas tank. And decided to just figure out how do you take your unique Liam Neeson set of skills to, you know, make a dent, derail, deride, chide, you know, critique the failings that we oh so often talk about around trials and access. And I think the magic word here with regard to your father's last three months is dignity around Mm -hmm. how you choose to live your life. For the listeners, I'm reading off a piece of paper that I printed out because I cannot possibly remember all the things that you're now involved with. (laughs) I mean, Metastatic Trial Talk, the Storm Riders Network, Komen, the uh, Breast Cancer Prevention Program at Kimmel, Teresa's Research Foundation, More Komen, The NIH Moonshot Program, the FDA, the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, which gave birth to me, by the way, the Metastatic Research Society, Lily Oncology Beyond Pink Foundation. But I do want to focus on the Grasp Cancer idea, graspcancer.org. This to me makes sense, but I, I I want you to give us like the elevator pitch for it, why it's necessary and how it's not competing with other ideas of its kind.
0: Well, the big difference with Grass is that it's patient-led. This is developed by two metastatic breast cancer patients. And, you know, we both feel strongly that patient advocates drive better research. And what we learned was that there's not really many opportunities for researchers who spend most of their time in a lab to meet a patient. They're not going to walk into an infusion room and say, hey, uh, I need some help with my grant here. Can you, you know, that's not going to happen. Usually the advocate has to kind of go maybe to their oncologist and say, hey, I'm very interested in research advocacy. Um, But there's very few programs that exist that actually bring researchers and advocates together. And there are a few and they're very good, uh, but they're still set up that the, we'll just call that person, you know, the clinician, researcher, just the collective term, we'll say scientist, uh, is the expert and you, the patient are there to learn from the scientist. And, you know, that's just not actually true. I mean, the patients have, people say PhD, which is like personal history of disease. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> you know, where it's like you, yeah, like you're an expert in living with cancer. And so we wanted to recognize patients as equal partners in, you know, this endeavor to to drive better research. That's like the main goal is that in the end, like the end goal is we want to have, uh, we want to improve patient lives, improve outcomes for patients by driving better research through a partnership between advocates and researchers. It really does work. I mean, I've, now that I've been involved in so many research projects that I know I'm making them better by helping them shape the project. Maybe it has to do with design. You know, maybe they're focused on on something that's not that important. I mean, we see so many, so many projects funded that really have no impact on patients. And what a waste, you know? Why not bring in the experts, the patients, to find out if this is really something that's going to help the community? Um, so yeah, that's how I see it differently, is that we really are we're treating each as an expert in their own right. You know, we've got or an oncologist, for example, is an expert in treating cancer. The researcher is an expert in studying cancer. And then the patient's an expert in living with cancer.
1: So do you see this as more of like a summary executive of your assay of what's wrong with the system? Because I I, I tend to be a cockeyed pessimist in this <laughs> <laughs> because I'm Jewish from Brooklyn by genetic yeah. default predispositions. But... You know, channeling my inner Woody Allen is, is it still comes down to the moment in time when you are sitting down with whatever doctor winds up being your doctor and that human being having the objectivity and the knowledge to make a recommendation that's right for you. How does humanizing or maybe putting I'll say consumer advocacy into the research process trickle down to that decision moment?
0: Well, I mean, I'm not actually sure. I don't even know. I just know that I know that any drug that a patient gets has to start with research. That's the beginning. You know, there's a person working in a lab who has this idea and then they move that drug through different testing and maybe it gets Past the preclinical trials to the actual clinical trials, and then through the clinical trials, the drug gets approved and it gets to a patient. So we know that like it has to start research as like the first step in any kind of treatment that's going to help a cancer patient. And so let's try to make the oncologists more in tune with what a patient needs. It's like too late in the process. Let's start from the very beginning, right. where that research is incorporating patient perspectives, what's going to be best for this patient, what's going to actually make this patient live longer and a better quality of life. That's what we're always looking for. Yes, we want to live longer, but we don't want to live long with a shitty side effect. (laughs) We want to live longer with a good quality of life, which by the way, researchers forget all the time. I mean, I can tell you right now, I just had to drop a drug from my regimen um, because the side effects were so annoying. Um, they were just so bad. I had to drop one of my infusion drugs. And I know that having that drug actually will extend my life. But I had this very candid conversation with my doctor where I just said, I, I can't live like this. You know, it's just not, this is not working for me. And this is the first week that I haven't had it. And I feel amazing. I've been exercising more. I've been running more. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, I feel like a different person. So, you know, this drug, it's like, it's not even, I, I, I wish that they could have studied the side effects a little bit more carefully, and then it could have gotten caught in the clinical trials, and maybe they could have reduced the dose or something. But, you know, it just kind of went through everything, and and now here I am not even using it. I'm not even going to use that drug. So I just feel like if we can start more at the beginning rather than at the end of that process, I feel like we have a better chance of, as you said, humanizing the issue and making sure that we are really giving patients the best treatment that they can have and live a good quality life.
1: Who knew that the best doctor on what's right for you is yourself?
0: (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Who knew? Yeah. You know, it's catching on. The doctors, I mean, the doctor oncologists I work with, you know, and I do this all through social media. That's a wonderful way to meet researchers and doctors all across the country. It doesn't have to be in your own community. And it's catching on. They they know. I mean, they're recognizing how valuable that patient perspective is. And, and knowing the patient does know their body, they know a lot. It doesn't mean that they know everything. You know, it's not, it, I definitely don't have the same education as my oncologist. But it, it's a partnership. You know, we're working together. I can tell her you know, what works for me and she can tell me what works from the data. And, and then we kind of negotiate and we move forward. I mean, that's how it should be. It's, a lot of people don't have that though. They do not have these conversations with their doctors. The doctors are kind of the, the person in charge dictating what happens. And it's a shame. You know? That's really a shame because there's so much that could come out of, of actually talking with your patient as a person.
1: Christine Hodgden is a stage four metastatic breast cancer survivor, wizard renaissance, magic advocate. You can learn more about her at the stormriders.org, at graspcancer.org, on Twitter at Christini513. You're a Wego Health patient leader and apparently the most interesting survivor of Guatemala I've ever had on the show. Thank you so much <laughs> for coming on Out of Patience.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media.
0: Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horangeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.